Hello and welcome to the Deathcast. I am your host, author, and journalist Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our fifth look into the life of disgraced former British MP Cyril Smith. Before we get going, as always, I have the normal show notes. If you'd like to follow me on social media, just search for The Deathcast, Deathcast Pod, or Deathcast Podcast. You can find me on most sites under any one of those monikers. If you enjoy what I do, please consider leaving a five-star review wherever it is that you get your favorite podcasts. Also consider subscribing to the show's feed. It's the best way to find out when new episodes are available. You can also find the show on YouTube under Corpse Creek Publishing. All episodes go up there generally right around the time that they are released on the podcast feed. All right, now that all of that is out of the way, let's get ourselves something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back and relax. I have my coffee, I have my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week, we had been discussing one of the individuals associated with Knollview School who did in fact end up serving time. And we had left off talking about Smith a little bit. He had been elected as the MP of Rochdale in 1972, and his star was really starting to take off. As I talked about in earlier episodes, Smith played an almost comical character out in public. Many within the British government saw Smith for what he was, which was a publicity hound. He was always mugging for the cameras, and made certain to get himself into places that he knew the press would be present. This in order to further raise his social awareness among the populace. There's a story out there, and this is one of many, that Smith was scheduled to be on a television show And moments before the show went on air, Smith asked the host of the show how much he was getting paid. And when he was informed that there was no financial compensation for his time, Smith threatened to leave. Eventually, it was worked out and Smith was in fact paid. But this type of thing was very common with Cyril Smith. He became so popular during the mid to late 1970s that he was able to use this popularity to not only strong-arm television productions into paying him, but also to ensure that programs wanted him as Cyril Smith equaled ratings. And this can be seen Throughout the following decades, Smith guest-starred on numerous television programs, not just political programs, but sitcoms and straight British comedies, oftentimes poking fun at himself, his weight, that kind of thing, along with starring in numerous commercials for various advertisement campaigns, one of the most famous of which 
was for a credit card where Smith played off of his obesity by attempting to touch his toes before going on to read the ad script for this particular card. Smith was seen as a very impassioned but buffoonish individual by the majority of the British public because of this persona that he had so carefully crafted. It's very similar in some regards to what Jimmy Savile had done and later Gary Glitter would do this public persona that they would create and hide behind, although in the case of Saville and Cyril Smith, both of them were known behind the scenes to be fairly ruthless businessmen. On the political front, perhaps the most important accomplishment of Smith's career came in 1977, now, this is disputed by some, but the majority of historians agree that the Lib Lab Pact, which was a coalition between the Liberal and Labor parties, was in fact fostered and pushed through by Smith. Basically, what happened was there was a major loss for the Labor Party during the by election, and there was in fact a vote of confidence for then Prime Minister James Callahan. Really, the gist of it is the Liberal Party agreed to back the Labour Party, provided that the Labour Party gave certain concessions specifically to back various key positions that the Liberals held and wanted to see take effect. Outside of this, by this point, Smith had made himself a household name in Rochdale. One of the things that he did, which I found extremely interesting, that other MPs and other politicians in general did not do, is Smith made himself not only accessible to his constituents, he went out of his way to make certain that they knew and understood that he was in fact working for them. One of the ways in which he did this is Smith would go to one of the local movie theaters on a Saturday, and during the intermission, he would interrupt the proceedings by walking out in front of the gathered audience in the theater, introducing himself, and then explaining exactly what it was that he was currently working on on their behalf. Now, this wasn't a one-off occurrence. This appears to have continued for many years. This is just one of the ways in which Cyril Smith went about ensuring his power base while getting himself press coverage at the same time as the local media outlets would cover these speeches that Smith gave within the theaters. 
Smith also had help in bolstering his popularity. This came in the form of an official endorsement by Jimmy Savile. Now, I know there's people out there, well, of course, he, he was a pedophile, he molested boys, too. There is no credible evidence that Jimmy Savile ever molested boys, as there is for Cyril Smith. So, let's throw that bit of garbage right out of the window. The two of them, as stated, were both very shrewd, cunning, and ruthless businessmen. And both realized the power that the other wielded and that by being linked up with the other, they could further cement their own power base and popularity. Smith was a very famous and popular MP, however, Saville was, as discussed in the 14-part The Life and Crimes of Jimmy Saville series, something else entirely apart from Smith and, in fact, wielded much more power at the end of the day than Cyril Smith could ever hope to have acquired. However, unlike Saville, who was known to be a very litigious individual, Cyril Smith did have his public detractors, those who would call out his public antics as being just exactly what they were, staged stunts in order to raise his status within the eyes of the public. Also, unlike Saville, Smith had detractors in the press who were not afraid to go after him concerning the rumors of his abuses which took place at the schools. And this is where things get murky concerning the story of Cyril Smith. We've discussed previously that there was, in fact, a concerted effort to cover up the crimes of Smith by individuals within the government. We're going to see once we get into the 1980s that this effort went well beyond just people looking out for Smith. But the period of time we're talking about right now, 1977, 1978, 1979, could legitimately have spelled disaster for Cyril Smith, his political career, and his life in general. As we've discussed, Smith had gotten himself onto various boards in and around Rochdale of education. He had also gotten himself onto the boards of at least 39 different schools. Smith went a step further by founding a charity known as Rochdale Childer, which was basically Smith going out and raising funds for children in need. This does parallel the things that Jimmy Saville did. However, Saville was, again, a completely different animal. The things that Smith did were very Rochdale-centric. According to numerous individuals within the British media, 
During this period of time, stories of Cyril Smith's abuses were well known. However, most did not dig into these as they either a did not want to face the wrath of Smith and his cronies or b didn't believe them. And I can understand that point of view to a certain extent in that individuals like Cyril Smith build up such a cult of personality around them. Even members of the media are not immune to it, and it is far easier to think the best of someone than it is to listen to the things that are being said in the pubs and the workhouses and the factories, because no one wants to think the worst of someone for to do so means that they are lying to you and you therefore have to question every single thing that they have said and done. There is another line of thought which has come from different members of the British media where they simply state that they didn't pursue the rumors of Smith because he was guaranteed to bring eyes to their product. And you do unfortunately see this time and time again with someone who has such public standing, is so revered within the public consciousness that they are guaranteed to bring in money for anyone associated with them. And the British media unfortunately did take this tactic with Smith wherein it was a case of, yes, we could run with these stories, whether they're true or not, or we could leave well enough alone and continue to reap the benefits of our association with Cyril Smith. And we will get back to this in just one moment. Face it, shaker bottles suck. Your protein shake always comes out clumpy and you look like an idiot using the thing. That's why I decided to ditch my shaker bottle for good and get myself a BlendJet 2 portable blender. It makes perfectly blended protein shakes in just 20 seconds. BlendJet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. BlendJet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. And it lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via a USB-C cord. Best of all, BlendJet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water and a drop of soap and you're good to go. So what are you waiting for? Go to BlendJet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code DCASTPOD to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the BlendJet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the BlendJet 2 portable blender. Go to BlendJet.com and use the code DCASTPOD to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Again, that's BlendJet.com and use promo code DCASTPOD at checkout. That's capital D, capital C, A-S-T, 
capital P-O-D, at checkout to get 12% off and free two-day shipping. And we are back. Before the break, we were talking about how some members of the British media have admitted that they did not pursue the Cyril Smith story because he made such good copy. In a quote from the book Smile for the Camera, The Double Life of Cyril Smith by Simon Janchuk and Matthew Baker, a former journalist for the BBC, Jim Hancock, states, We used him in a lot of stories. He had the same Saville chemistry. I mean, Saville was everywhere. On top of the pops, with the Queen working in Leeds Hospital, you couldn't doubt his character. Then there was Cyril, committed to charity, Rochdale Childer, a man of the people. The idea that there's a different side to these people, you just can't see it. When these people are so celebrated, so famous, to make that leap is quite difficult. And that just further goes to reinforce what I talked about during the break. Since his death, numerous accusations have come out that Smith may have bribed many local members of law enforcement. Whether or not this is in fact true, I cannot state with any level of certainty. However, it does go to show you the level of influence that Smith had wherein people would bring concerns about Smith to the police and they were very quickly shuttered. It's more than that, however. Smith was a very vindictive individual to those who crossed him, whether it was real or perceived. And there are countless stories out there of social workers being made aware of Smith's activities and either realizing that to challenge him and bring forth allegations would ruin their lives, or in fact going through with bringing these allegations and suffering the consequences. Namely, Smith was very good at getting these individuals removed from their positions and, in effect, terminating their professional careers. Another aspect that allowed Smith to escape any sort of prosecution is the fact that in Great Britain during this period of time, victims of child sexual abuse were seen to come predominantly from the lower class families, and unfortunately it wasn't looked on as a crime per se. Yes, it was seen as something that was distasteful and disgusting, but by and large, individuals within Great Britain saw it as nothing more uh, than a problem of the lower classes and one of those things which could not be rooted out and therefore really didn't need to have any sort of a spotlight shown on it. That wasn't the view of everyone in the press, however. As I discussed before the break, at least one newspaper got a hold of the allegations of Cyril Smith's abuse of boys and ran with them. That was the Rochdale Alternative Press, which was edited by John Walker and Dave 
Bartlett. And this is the piece that I was talking about which could have ended Cyril Smith's career as the Rochdale Alternative Press during this period of time, 1977 to 1979, had one of the largest circulations of any alternative press within Great Britain. According to Walker, he first became aware of the rumors surrounding Smith in 1979, when stories of the historical abuses that Smith had perpetrated at Cambridge House came to his attention, and upon hearing them, Walker and his co-editor decided that where there's smoke, there's fire, and they needed to investigate these allegations further. Unfortunately, the story that came out in the Rochdale Alternative Press really failed to gain any significant traction with the wider mainstream media, and Smith quickly and quietly went on the offensive, having a gag order issued against the newspaper, threatening litigation, although he never stepped forward and went to court with any of this. The wider media, as discussed, simply turned a blind eye to these articles that were run in the Rochdale alternative press as, again, Smith made good copy. That being said, Smith's atrocities did not abate with the publication of these stories. If anything, they became far worse. There are numerous cases of Smith beating children, mercilessly breaking bones, knocking out teeth, that sort of thing. And I think it's important to look at these sorts of allegations against Cyril Smith. Again, we don't have a slew of stories of him sexually violating boys in the traditional sense. Rather, it seems that he got off on inflicting massive amounts of pain and humiliation on these children. Which leads me to believe that Smith's pedophilia was of a different nature than most, in that he was, as discussed in other episodes, really trying to inflict pain and humiliation on those who had caused him to suffer similar experiences during his youth. I personally don't believe that the things Smith did were fully sexually motivated in nature so much as they were revenge motivated. And I say that just based on the nature of his crimes. One thing that has been noted about Smith, despite all of his posturing and claiming to wholly represent Rochdale within Parliament, is that other members of Parliament have come forward and stated that Although Smith had a public image that was impeccable 
and was a fantastical orator. He did very little as a member of parliament. There are stories, of course, of him adding things to various pieces of legislation, but according to these individuals, beyond that, Smith rarely came to things such as cabinet meetings and the like, preferring to save his energies for times where cameras would be present to pick up all of his shenanigans, which would lead him into great positions of power. One thing we're going to look at very briefly concerns the Lib Lab Pact of 1977. According to a retired member of the Lancashire Police Department, at the time this pact was being worked out, members of MI5 approached the Lancashire Police Department demanding any files on the... MPs within their district. Specifically, it was asked for files on Cyril Smith. Many commentators have stated that this tactic from MI5 may have been at the behest of the government to ensure that Smith went along with this pact, and that is a possibility. Politics is a dirty game, and oftentimes you will encounter individuals who use tactics such as blackmail to achieve their own ends. But there's a much darker side to this story, in that it is known that MI5 approached police departments associated with Smith going so far back as the early to mid-1970s and collecting dossiers on him. It is thought that this was done under the Official Secrets Act, which basically means that this information cannot, under any circumstances, be disseminated to the public in any form or fashion. In essence, the government, through its intelligence services, was keeping Smith in a protective bubble. Because he was so popular and because the government was in such turmoil, they realized that to do otherwise would more likely than not further shake the public's trust in their government, which is understandable to a certain degree if Smith was doing something as taking bribes However, we know the crimes that Smith committed were irreparably altering the lives of countless young children, and it further goes to show how the consensus at the time viewed childhood sexual abuse as being something that only affected the lower classes and was therefore not really an issue. Now we're going to move on to talking about what is perhaps the most infamous episode from Smith's political career, and that is his association with the asbestos lobby. As most people within the West are aware, asbestos, particularly the particles produced by it, leads to serious medical conditions. Now, the 
asbestos lobby, much as the medical and tobacco industries have lobbied for decades to suppress this information. And during the 1970s, 1980s, their efforts were in full effect. And one of those who came underneath their sway was Cyril Smith. And we're going to talk in depth about Smith's association with the asbestos industries when we come back from break. I'm on the road a lot, and it's really hard to stay properly hydrated on the road. There's so many choices between water and sports drinks, many of them filled with sugars and other chemicals that leave you feeling run down afterwards. But what if I told you there is a better solution? Liquid 4 is the category winning hydration brand fueling your well-being and their hydration multiplier is the one product you're missing in your daily routine. In just one stick you get five essential vitamins and two times faster hydration than water alone. Use it first thing in the morning, before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, and on a long flight. One of the things I like best about the Liquid 4 Hydration Multiplier is their delicious flavor options, such as sea berry, strawberry lemonade, Concord grape, lemon lime, pina colada, or my personal favorite, watermelon. But Liquid 4 doesn't just taste good, it's good for you. It contains five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, and vitamin C. And it has three times the electrolytes of traditional sport drinks. But best of all, Liquid 4 is non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy, which means that anybody can enjoy it, regardless of their dietary restrictions. And now, just for listeners of my show, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code DCASTPOD at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code DCASTPOD. So go to liquid4, that's IV.com, and use promo code capital D, capital C, A S T, capital P O D, at checkout to get 20% off your order. Liquid 4 Hydration. It's time to take your hydration needs to the next level. Alright, we are back. I have a fresh cup of coffee. Let's dive into this. The asbestos industry was very important at this point in time to the economy within Rochdale. However, there were accusations going around, as there had been for years, that asbestos was in fact very detrimental to the health of those who were around it. This was making headlines in Great Britain and in fact the world. So the asbestos companies realized they needed people in power on their side. Obviously, Smith was an individual in power, and they approached him under the auspices of 
you know, making a friendship between the Liberal Party and the asbestos industry. In reality, what they were doing, and both sides of this understood it, they were buying off Cyril Smith in order to present a better public image to the general public at large. The asbestos industry knew and understood and had for decades that the product that they were creating was extremely toxic and deadly to humans. They did not want this information to get out, and Smith was the perfect individual to refute these claims that their product was in fact killing people. Smith tried to claim and did for many years that he was only lobbying for the asbestos industry because it was protecting jobs in Rochdale and nothing more. However, when he was 80 years old, documents were released that revealed Smith had, in fact, known about the dangers of asbestos and was in bed with the largest manufacturer of asbestos in Rochdale that he was not, in fact, worried about the jobs so much as he was about the share price of this asbestos company, as Smith had been given a pretty sizable amount of stock within this company, and if they were to fail, he would lose this money. So Smith really championed the asbestos industry, particularly in 1983. What emerged in Smith's lifetime is that not only was he asked to stand up for asbestos and paid by cash as well as stocks, the asbestos industry also was writing scripts for him to present to Parliament and other MPs in an effort to win them over. After news of all of this came out, Smith acted extremely nonchalant, stating, quote, it's not like, how can I put it, like flu and contagious claiming that all of the information that was coming out at the time was nothing more than a left-wing plot to destroy and discredit him. However, Smith was unable to bounce back from this particular scandal. Again, he was 80 years old, and by that point, it did not matter to him, as he was retired from public life and extremely wealthy. Smith further went on to blame the individuals who had gotten sick from asbestos, stating that no one had forced them to work in the conditions and around the materials that they had, and that these individuals had in fact understood the risks associated with asbestos upon taking these jobs. Another fallacy. We're going to talk briefly here at the end of the show about a supposed scandal that arose after Jimmy Savile's death that involved Cyril Smith. It was around 1983 and was one of a slew of conspiracies perpetrated against these already awful individuals 
in an effort to paint them in a worse light, but also to get those who were spinning these tales more money. And I'm talking about the Elm Guest House, which was located in London. As the story goes, in 1983, police raided the Elm's Guest House. And upon raiding it, they discovered that it was, in fact, a gay brothel for high-ranking politicians, celebrities, you name it. And while the story did receive some considerable attention during the time of the actual raid, none of the allegations concerning celebrities and people of power were made at that time. It was simply that it was a hotel where rent boys, that is, underage and of age males, sold their sexual services to the individuals who were staying there. It wasn't until many decades later that this story began making the rounds that MI5 and Special Branch had, in fact, gone in and taken all of this information concerning Elm Guesthouse after the raid because they knew the individuals involved with Elm Guesthouse were, in fact, pedophiles and were attempting to cover it up and protect them and thus protect the government and the entertainment industry. You may be thinking, oh, this is probably something that blew over fairly quickly. It was not. In fact, they made documentaries on Elm Guesthouse in which the individual making the claims, a convicted fraudster named Chris Fay, stated that he had been a member of the police department when members of MI5 and Special Branch approached them, demanding that the files on the Elm Guest House, particularly the files concerning members of royalty and the British government, be handed over. Again, according to Frey, these files were kept in a safe and he protested this, but was instructed that he had no choice under the Official Secrets Act. Frey then stated that he handed over these files and they were never seen or heard from again. Now, Frey did come out in 1990 and make similar claims about Elm Guest House. However, these allegations in 1990 were glossed over by the vast majority of the government and the media. It wasn't until 2015 when Frey came back out with these allegations that people began to take him seriously. Remember, this is after the kerfluffle involving Jimmy Saville, who had passed away in 2012, the Metropolitan Police Department, also known as the Met, began to investigate these allegations that Frey was making. Numerous documentaries were produced, and people bit into this hook, line, and sinker, all while Frey was getting paid for his story, as well as 
for appearing on various media casts and in films. And this led to further conspiracies which fueled arrests of individuals who, as of today's date in 2023, have neither been charged, tried, or convicted of any crimes. However, these conspiracy theories continue to persist because there are individuals who believe that the evidence against Frey and his malfeasance in perpetrating this hoax are made up and that, in fact, the allegations against Frey stem from the British government, specifically MI5 and Special Branch, who were instructed with discrediting him because the government did not want the public at large to know the level of complacency they had in protecting pedophiles within Great Britain. That's not to say that the British government did not protect pedophiles within Great Britain. We know that they did. We know that they protected Cyril Smith and a few others. However, the idea that they went out of their way so many decades after the fact when the majority of the participants were dead and or dying is beyond laughable in my opinion and the reason i say that is when accusations against saville and rolf harris and cyril smith came to light the government jumped on these pretty quickly and investigated them to the best of their ability, although with Saville there's an air of caution. However, with a good number of these individuals who are still spouting this, they fall into that QAnon-type category where they see pedophiles underneath every rock and believe that the world governments are involved in this vast, satanic, child molestation and murdering conspiracy, and that's the reason that Frey was discredited. No, Frey was discredited because it came out that he had fabricated the documents which he purported to have been given or have written himself during his time working as a constable. And Frey eventually did admit that he had, in fact, fabricated this entire story specifically to make himself famous and get money. But that is an important part that I felt needed to be covered somewhat at depth at this junction of the early 1980s, because now we are moving into what I consider to be the most horrific period of abuse perpetrated by Cyril Smith and his cohorts, specifically at Knollview School. And we're going to be talking about that in great depth next week, because the things that come out of what happened at Knollview School had the potential, once again, to destroy Smeryl Smith, but unfortunately, they did not. 
So I am going to end the show at this point. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Again, please like and share it on social media with your friends. Until next time, The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing in association with Big Pond Podcasts. Stay morbid. <laughs>